For our scripture reading this evening, we're going to first turn to 1 Corinthians 13 and read that. Maybe you recognize that as the great biblical chapter on love. The word charity in this chapter is the biblical word love. may be interpreted that way, the way it should be understood. And then we'll go to Ephesians 4 and read our text. But our text talks about speaking the truth in love. So what better place to go to understand what that means than to the passage that begins about speaking the truth in love. 1 Corinthians 13. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and have not charity, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. Though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, And though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, Seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil. Rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. Beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Charity never faileth, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether they be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man... I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. And now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three. But the greatest of these is charity. And now let's turn to Ephesians chapter 4. And for context, I'll begin reading with verse 11. Ephesians 4, verse 11. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And now it follows as our text. That we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love, may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, fitly joined together, and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Beloved congregation in our Lord Jesus Christ, once again, the Apostle brings to us not anything new, but he's simply explaining further things that he has talked about before. He's adding 
adding in his explanation. And once again, we will see that he also, that he also brings us back to a subject, in fact, the very subject with which he began this grand section in the book of Ephesians. First of all, he's further explaining what we may see is the main theme of spiritual maturity, spiritual maturity, growing up. And he had talked about that even in the previous context about growing up to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And that is related to gifts that are given from the ascended Lord in heaven. And one of those gifts being the gift of the ministry. About those gifts, the apostle reminded us that even as there is one church, one faith, one Lord, one baptism, there is a diversity of gifts. And one example of that is the ministry. One ministry, really, the ministry of the Word. One gift to the church, but it comes in a variety. A variety of offices, even temporary and permanent offices. Emphasis in the work. Some pastors, some teachers, some prophets, some apostles. And all of that is for the edifying of the church, the growing up of the church. The apostle is going to further explain that now in this passage, this growth. Talk about the measure of it. How do you measure maturity? And how it also occurs. How is it that the church is edified and built up? How does it grow? And then finally, the apostle is going to end up where he started this whole passage. You remember how the passage began with the beseeching of us from Paul, the prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ, to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Behind all of this is the notion of unity, the concept of unity. He first developed that, talked about that, mentioned the various forms of it, then left it for a little bit, and now at the very end he comes back to it. He introduces it again in verse 13, till we all come in the unity of the faith. But that's what he's talking about again also here when he talks about the whole body being fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth. That's code for unity. That what he has to say here, in other words, about growth and how it occurs, how the church is edifying, facilitates or nurtures unity. And we're going to see that also this evening. Consider with me then this Word of God, growing up into Christ, growing up into Christ. And we notice in the first place the measure of maturity. The measure of maturity, growing up into Christ, is about maturity. We notice in the first place the measure of that. Secondly, the love that edifies, and finally, the unity that is nurtured. <coughs> the measure of maturity. So, that should not surprise us. We talked about it last week, that this section is about spiritual maturity. And what we have here, when the Apostle talks about growing up into Christ, which is what he says, that speaking the truth in love, we may grow up into Him, that's Christ, grow up into Him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. I hope you see that the Apostle here is simply giving another word or phrase for the same thing. That what he's talking about is the very same thing, for example, that he called earlier the perfecting of the saints. If you ask what does growing up into Christ have to do with? It has to do with the perfecting of the saints. And perfecting of the saints is growing up into Christ. That's verse 12. So if we see growing up into Christ as basically a synonym of the perfecting of the saints, you know something about it. Perfecting of the saints emphasizes two things. One, it's the perfecting of something that is already in a very real sense, a saint. We mentioned that. We are saints, and yet we must be perfected. And that word perfected is a particular word 
That doesn't mean perfect in the sense that we often associate it, that something was imperfect. It was greatly flawed. It, it really wasn't something because then we wouldn't be saints. We're saints. But we have to be perfected in the sense that we're brought to the goal or the end that God has in store for us. That there's, there's the saint, there's the child of God, and he is not yet what God wants him to be. It has the idea that there's a goal or end of perfection that is established by the will and counsel of God. And things aren't over. That is, there must be a growth. There must be a transition from here to there. From this to that, according to the counsel of God. So growing up into Christ has to do with the perfecting of the saints. Verse 12, same thing. The edifying of the body. There's a body. There's members of the body. It's not that they're not a body. And that they're a body implies that they're alive. They're, they're living. And they're, they're edified. They, they have a certain nurture. Otherwise, they wouldn't be alive. And there's a body. But it, it has to be edified. It has to be fed. It has to be nourished. It has to be given something. And that so it grows. In other words, that too refers to this growing up into Christ. There it's looking up more at the spiritual process itself and that the spiritual process occurs by means of feeding, by means of nutrition. And that even brings to mind this, since we all know about edifying the body. When are you done edifying your body? Answer, never. From the day you are born till the day you die, your body will need to be edified. It needs to be edified simply to live. We even recognize that when we've reached what we call maturity. The amazing thing is the apostle here is building on these pictures, these very things that God has given us in normal everyday life to understand the real spiritual reality. Even though we're saints, even though we're a body, even though we're alive, even though we're joined up to Christ, are united to Christ, there nevertheless must be a perfecting of the saints, an edifying of the body, and a growing up into Christ. Take note of that. The fact that we must grow up into Christ means does not mean that there's no connection between us and Christ. It does not mean that we are not any part of Christ or in any way connected to Christ until we grow up into Him. Again, the very pictures that He's invoking show that that's not the way it works. It's not like a child's head is disconnected from his body until he becomes spiritually mature. No, but spiritual maturity has to do with the relationship of the body and the head, certainly. So that's what's going on here. And keep in mind this Two, with regard to spiritual maturity, that he's already told us somewhat what the measure of that is. I said to you, determining maturity is a, a little difficult, isn't it? We can pick an arbitrary age. You're mature when you're this age, but we know that doesn't apply to all people. People come in all sorts of flavors. Some mature earlier than others. And there's various degrees even of maturity. It's hard to measure. And we have various standards by which to measure it. And and many times even when we might recognize that somebody is physically mature, we'll say that, but inwardly they're they're really immature. They're they're very childish inside. Striking that this passage as well as the passage that we read refer to these things in terms of children and adulthood. But notice the apostle earlier had m- talked about the measure, the standard. What is it? It's Jesus Christ himself. The perfect man is measured by the standard of Christ himself. Until, until we arrive to the perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. There's your standard of what it means to be a real man, a mature Christian, an adult. So there you can see not only is this a lifelong process, 
with regard to the individual, will you arrive any time before death to that perfect stature? Answer, no. Nevertheless, that's the goal or the end of God. But you will see that this really will take all of history for the church itself. The church itself will not arrive at that perfect stature, be the complete body, be the perfection even of our Lord Jesus Christ until every single member is gathered and joined into that body. So these are all things that we can keep in the back of our mind as the, father, as the apostle goes on now to explain further. Now, here he talks about it as growing up into him. Now that, that's a strange phrase. You would expect the apostle to talk about growing out of Christ. That would not be wrong. The Bible elsewhere does refer to us as growing out of Christ. He's a root. And we're a tree that, a branch that grows out of him. He, he's divine. We are the branches. There's all kinds of biblical examples like that, which shows you he's not invoking them as such. He, he's using this term deliberately, grow up into Christ. So we ought to recognize the Holy Spirit is calling our attention to something and forcing us to look at this a little differently than we might otherwise do. In fact, we might even say to think about growing out of Christ is rather natural, but growing up into Him, why that's a little strange and needs some explanation. So what's going on? Number one, that's the Spirit's way of saying that He's looking at the church now in terms of a body, a human being. That the language he's using is that which we would, we would use not so much with regard to any living thing like a tree or a vine or even, as we've noted before, a living temple where we're built upon Christ the cornerstone and we grow on top of Him. No, this is the language of the relationship of a head and a body. <clears throat> that doesn't mean that this is exclusively how it works. We still should see that the term that he uses still means that the power, the growth, that which edifies, everything that he's talking about does come from and out of Christ. But he's really building upon the picture of the church as a human body. And according to that picture, what is it that's most important? What is it that determines everything with regard to the body? And the answer is the head. The head. Not only is it certain that if you separate the body from the head, the body dies instantly. But the idea is the head determines everything that you are and what you will be. It's the head that determines where you will go and not go, what occupation you shall engage in, what education you get, what are the things that you know and learn and retain. All that's determined by the head, and all those determinations determine what the body does, where it goes. Your body just doesn't act on its own. So he's invoking that language of the head and the body, and that the head is primary. The head is dominant. The head is the source of everything with regard to the body itself. It dictates the growth. It dictates the maturity. It dictates how that body matures, the way that it matures. It dictates what it is that will edify the body. We all know that we can take in certain things into our body. What determines that? The head does. But this too, our body serves the head. In a real sense, we may say that the head is what the body is supposed to be, what it's supposed to grow into. Look at yourself right now. Everything's covered up except your head. There. What's the important thing? The head. 
the measure of the head, the growth of the head. All of it is determined by the head, and really, the head is the standard. The head is what we grow up into. That's really the second thing that he's bringing out here. To grow up into the head means that head is the goal. The head is the end. The head determines what spiritual maturity is, to put it another way. We may say that spiritual maturity simply is to more and more resemble our head, to more and more behave like our head, to live in obedience to our head, to do what our head tells us to do, to live closely joined to that head and not doing its own thing. Even we recognize that, do we not? If you're to talk about spiritual maturity and what it's like, when your kids do something that they ought not do as determined by the head, as determined not only by mom and dad, but what even rational thought demands, what's the first question you ask them? What were you thinking? What were you thinking when you did that? The answer is they weren't. So those are the concepts that are behind this when he talks about growing up into Christ. Spiritual maturity is that more and more the body not only resembles and reflects the head, it obeys the head, it follows the head, but also this, that every particular part and member and aspect of that body together, together does that. In other words, it's done as a body, not just a, simply a connection of individuals. That's not it either. Again, simply look at the picture. When your body grows and when there's maturity, physical maturity, does just one part change or two parts or three parts? But no, the whole body changes together. It's kind of an amazing thing proportionally, each member according to its part and what it should be grows. It grows up into the head. So when you look at it, the language is not all that strange. Now, our first point was about the measure, the standard, the measure. How do you, how do you measure this? And I said that earlier the apostle said you can measure it according to Christ, according to the fullness or perfection of Christ. But now the apostle puts a little more meat on it. He explains it a little more carefully. That one thing is rather general. It still kind of begs the question, well, what does it mean to measure up to the fullness of Christ? What does it mean to be that perfect man? And the key is that it's measured in terms of the truth. To be more specific, it's measured in terms of where one stands with regard to the truth. Even more importantly, where one stands with regard to their own mind and heart and soul and their actions with regard to the truth. And that is what the Apostle is explaining in the opening verses. You may see the opening verses where he talks about that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro. He's describing spiritual immaturity. Children. What are children like? even in the spiritual realm, not simply the physical realm, but the spiritual realm. Well, children are tossed to and fro. The spiritual light waits. And they're carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they light and wait to deceive. And from a certain viewpoint, the apostle here sort of changes the metaphor. You may think immediately of huge winds, great winds, tornadic-like winds, wind gusts blowing all over the place, and there are two trees. One is a tiny little tree, a couple of years old, a young tree, roots barely in the ground. No one's staked it down. And then next to it is this huge, huge oak tree. Now, when those winds blow, the oak tree is going to gather more of those winds. It's going to catch more of those winds. There's more leaves. There's more mass. There's more area of the tree. And yet, 
it's likely to stand, to stay right where it is. It may sway, it may bend, the leaves may rustle, they may even rip off the tree, but the tree remains, but not the sapling. It will break, it will uproot. He's invoking that. Now you understand the same thing and happen with people too, even in winds. He could be talking about people. When strong winds come, it's the little children who more easily get tossed around. He's saying this is how you measure spiritual immaturity. First you have to recognize that there's winds that are blowing. And these winds are false doctrine. They are things that are not true. That's evident from his talking about the slight of men, wind of doctrine, slight of men, cunning craftiness, deceit. And we have to put it all together. These are winds that have their source in the devil himself, the father of the lie. That explains why these winds have the nature that they do. These winds that blow, and you have to imagine this now, just like if you were out in a huge, huge windstorm, that these are all doctrines, falsehoods, lies, deceit. And they're blowing all over the place. In fact, the idea here is that they're always blowing. They're always blowing. It's not like there's an occasional storm here and there, but they're always blowing here, there, and everywhere. The source of them is the devil, the father of the lie. And it's very hard to detect what they are. It's very hard to detect that this is a wind of false doctrine, that this is a wind of deceit, that this is craftiness that I'm looking at, that I'm observing, at least for children. With regard to the spiritually immature with a child, he may stare at those winds and not understand at all what he's looking at or what he's feeling or what's blowing around. Doesn't recognize the source. And now, take note that the apostle says that they're really blowing out of the lips of men. The devil's a spirit. He himself is the source of them, but not blowing them around. Men do. This is the slight of men and cunning craftiness of men, wherein by they, that is, men, lie in wait to deceive. He has men at his disposal. Men all over the world, all over the globe, wherever the church is found, wherever the people of God are found, blowing these winds. They blow, therefore, in the winds of culture. When you look out over the world and you see what comes out of its mouth, when you see what comes out of the mouth of their literature and their movies and entertainment and sports and just about everything that comes out of the mouth of men is false. It is not true. Part of spiritual maturity is that one would recognize that. It's a spiritually mature person, a child in a spiritual sense who would say, well, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just Disney. I hope you see that. Perhaps that may have been done in a time long ago, but it really shouldn't have. Not if you consider its source, the world, and understand that the false church is involved in this. You can identify the false church because the very same winds will be blowing there that blow around in the world. Now, the point is, the spiritual, spiritual immaturity is determined by how one reacts to that. To be spiritually immature is to not only fail to recognize it, fail to recognize that this book is full of lies, that movie is full of falsehoods. But in a doctrinal sense, too. Spiritual immaturity is to look out over the church world and say, I don't see anything wrong there. It's to listen to a preacher and say, I don't, I don't recognize anything false there. But it's not simply the recognition of it. It's to not be tossed around by it. To not lose one's bearings. 
So let's take note of that because that helps us understand then spiritual maturity. The mark of spiritual maturity then is a certain stability. It is the ability to stand, to bend without breaking, to not lose one's moorings, one's roots, one's place where God has planted them. That's what spiritual maturity is. Spiritual maturity is to remain connected with what has gone before. Recognize that, right? What would happen if you would take a sapling, plant it in the ground, and every two years just rip it up out of the ground and put it somewhere else? Uh, Sooner or later you're going to kill it. The oak tree that's standing there in those winds has stood there for hundreds of years, perhaps. That's what spiritual maturity is. Spiritual maturity with regard to an individual, don't forget, and as well as the church. It has to do with your relationship to the truth. To be spiritually mature is to be rooted in a truth that you will find you can go back and trace all the way back to the Bible. You could trace all the way back to every child of God. There should never be a time, really, where the church says, we've got something new here. This is new. Nope, that would be a sign that some false doctrine or wind, some cunning craftiness, some sleight of hand has bamboozled and swindled you. It means there's a connection from an individual in the church to the whole church, and from the whole church not only in one's life, and one's time and place, but the whole church of our Lord Jesus Christ. There will be, and one should expect, development of the truth, but never in such a way that there's something new, entirely new, that you can't find in Scripture, you won't find in some previous church father. Spiritual maturity is the exact opposite. Always a hankering for something new, a touting of something new. There will be disconnect from the church of the past. There will be even a rejection of the church in the past and the theologians, the orthodox theologians of the past. But one more thing about this measure of spiritual maturity is it has to do with confession, speaking. Notice he talks about children being tossed to and fro, but when he comes to spiritual maturity, he talks about speaking, speaking the truth. A sign of spiritual maturity, the measure of this, according to Christ, is that one confesses the truth. One can say, I believe. I believe this, and I believe that. Now, there's more to it than that. It has to do with knowing the truth. That's clear when you realize he's explaining one of the other characteristics of maturity that he taught earlier. That spiritual maturity consists of coming to the knowledge of the Son of God. So to speak the truth, you must know it. It's all part of the thing. And that knowledge of the Son of God, of course, who is the Word, is found in the Word. Spiritual maturity has to do with one's relationship to the Word of God, that one receives that Word of God as the very Word of God, that one knows it, one is familiar with it, that one is not at odds with any teaching of that holy word. That would be spiritual immaturity. That one says, this is the truth, and they know it. And keep in mind, keep in mind, beloved, this is what underlies our work in the home and our work in the school. Our schools would do well to study this passage as to what constitutes spiritual maturity because they are tasked with helping us parents bring our children to spiritual maturity. And it's all right here. But notice it's more than just knowing. If someone just says, I know the truth, and I park it here inside my heart, and I believe these things, no, spiritual maturity is you speak it. It comes out of your mouth. You say it. You say it to others. You bring it to others. You tell others all about it. Spiritually immature can't do that. They don't want to do it. They're ashamed to do it. They may invoke the fact that they're shy. Strange thing is, often those who are so shy that they can't speak the Word of God to others are real free to bring all kinds of things to others that have nothing to do with the Word of God. But be that as it may, spiritual maturity speaks 
the truth, speaks the truth to one's children, speaks the truth to one's spouse, speaks the truth to the ungodly, speaks the truth wherever and anywhere, to ever. It's not just simply speak the truth here and there, but the individual member and the church speaks the truth. It stops speaking the truth. It's either spiritually immature or it is no church at all. So there's the measure. You may measure every individual child of God. You may measure every church that's in the world according to the speaking of the truth. And on the other side, what happens when winds of doctrines blow or as they blow? Where are they in relationship to that? That's how you have to see the church world. That's how you have to view the world. That's how you view Trinity Protestant Reformed Church in the midst of this world. You may do that. And it's helpful, too. It does help explain things with regard to the church. Now, we're going to talk about that next, the love that edifies. Edifies. Edifies is to build up, to strengthen. It's what makes something grow. He talks about that. That there is an edifying, that there is an increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. This edifying is a growing, a growth. And it's really what nurtures that growth. And that all by itself is quite worthy of pointing out. I don't have time to make a lot of this point, but there's a paradigm here. There's an outlook here of the church that is very, very healthy and very, very good. And it's one that should not be too foreign for us because we see it in our own homes We should be able to see that what the Apostle's talking about, which we see with our own children, that they're born into our home, and it's not like they grow and all of a sudden they're a member of Christ. All of a sudden, at some point, perhaps spiritual maturity, that they're now a Christian. That's how much of the church world looks at individuals, especially even children born of believing parents. But that's not the way it is. It's not the way it is for the church generally. It's not the way it is generally for the members of the church. There's a growth that occurs. On the one hand, we may say that we never were, that we never were these things. It's remarkable that even in here there's a recognition that this is what you used to be. We read of that already in chapter 2. There's always in the church a reminder of what you used to be, even as adults. That's good and healthy for us, isn't it? To remember that we've been edified, we've been strengthened, we've been built up. This is what we used to be. This is how we were when we were born. And this is what has happened to us. Because it's good for humility. It keeps one from pride. It gives one a healthy respect for those who helped nurture you and raise you. And the same thing is happening here. The apostle brings this to our attention so that we have a healthy understanding of who we are. That there's normally a growth in the church, in the individual members. Whether one is brought into the church on the mission field, that too. We, we wouldn't expect now a different standard whereby we allow our children to grow up, right? We expect our children not to be at spiritual maturity when they're 2 and 3 and 4 and 5, would we? Not even when they're 8, 9, 10, 11. We, we expect them to grow in maturity. But for some odd reason, when it comes to the mission field, we don't allow that to happen. They come to the faith. They come out of complete and other heathendom into the church, and we expect them to be just like us. They have to be spiritually mature right out of the box. And it's like... Why? You didn't expect that of your own children. They're coming into the church as spiritual children. doesn't matter what they look like. doesn't matter how old they are. doesn't matter. They have to grow. Give them time to grow. There has to be that. That's good. So notice this balance. Remember who you are. Remember that there's this growth that occurs, this edification that occurs. This is how to look at the church. And at the same time, we're not allowed to look at the church this way either. Like a light switch. On or off. In or out. Even when one looks at the notion of true or false, one has to do so in the light of this Word of God. Say what you say about the true and false church. One must acknowledge that there are churches and individuals who are children and those who are spiritually adults. 
But I move on. Let's talk about what it is that edifies. And here, too, there's a shocking language used here by the Holy Spirit. Because if you ask, what is it that edifies? What is it that grows? What is it that makes the church grow? What would you expect? What would you expect the Spirit to say? If you're like me, you'd expect the Spirit to say the truth. I mean, after all, the sign of spiritual maturity is how one sits and stands with regard to the truth. So if you asked what it is that actually builds up the church, you would expect the truth. Now there's truth to that. Don't minimize that. He talks about growing in the knowledge of the Son of God. There ought to be growth in knowledge. And how can one be spiritually mature if one doesn't speak the truth and know the truth? It all concerns the truth. And there are passages in Scripture that teach very clearly that we are edified by the church. We even teach that the primary means of edification is the Word. We just considered that, did we not? The great gift of God to the church of ministers of the Word by which we are edified, but that's not what the Apostle says, and thus the Holy Spirit. Notice what edifies, what it is that nurtures and nourishes the truth as it grows in spiritual maturity. It's love. That's why he adds it to the words, speak the truth. The words speak the truth have to do with the measure of one's maturity, how you tell maturity from immaturity. But notice that qualifier, in love, speak the truth in love, and then in case we don't quite get it, he returns to it at the very end when he says, very clearly, according to the effectual working, in the measure of every part maketh increase of the body, increase of the body is the same thing as edification, unto the edifying of itself in love. That's emphasis. So we need to look at that. You see, the words speaking the truth in love have probably been the most misunderstood, misquoted, warped and twisted passage in Scripture that there is. You see, on the one hand, there's those who would separate the words speaking the truth from the words in love, as if speaking the truth is the essential thing, and that speaking of the truth is what brings the church to spiritual maturity without the words in love. That's not true. The apostle here, the Spirit here, is saying that speaking the truth all by itself doesn't edify. Not all by itself it doesn't. The truth all by itself isn't some magic potion that can do the things that are talked about here. I can prove it. Call me sometime and ask me to tell you simply the truth, only the truth. And I can destroy you with that truth. I can de absolutely destroy you. I won't build you up. I will tear you to shreds with the truth. I could stand on this pulpit and speak the truth and only the truth, and utterly shred every member here, tear you down to pieces. But that's not edifying. Only speaking the truth in love edifies. Now, on the other hand, there are all kinds of people who would separate in love from speaking the truth. That's most of the modern church world today. What's the calling of the church? To love. What do we do? We love. How do we grow? Love. I don't go to that church because they don't love. I'm going to go here because they're so loving. Do they speak the truth? No, it doesn't really matter. You may do that either. Those phrases are inseparably connected. The church that simply loves will find out that it does not love at all. Speaking the truth in love is the important thing. But we're going to focus now on the love. What does it mean to speak the truth in love? as opposed to simply speaking the truth. Well, I'm going to point out to you two very simple things. They're very simple. And they will help you from simply touting speaking the truth as a means of education versus just simply in love. Did you read 1 Corinthians 13 very carefully? 
It's talking about speaking, not just behavior, but speaking. That's how it starts. If I speak this way, then what am I? If I speak this way, you're just a big, huge, banging cymbal. You're just a bunch of noise. That's all you are, in a, in a very annoying noise at that. If you don't speak the truth in love, you're a big nothing, a big zero, says the apostle. When he's talking about kindness and all those things, he's talking about speaking. Not just behavior, but speaking especially. So if you want to know what speaking the truth in love is, go back and read the passage, please. If you don't speak the truth that way, you're not speaking the truth in love. Oh, you may be speaking the truth, but you're not edifying. You're tearing down, you're destroying, you're dividing, and you're really immature. Number two, what's the standard for love? When the apostle says speaking the truth in love, what's the standard of love? Good. Ten commandments, isn't it? You see, someone's not loving or speaking in love if they're violating all the commandments as they do it. It's, it's pretty simple. And it's why what goes for love in much of the church world today isn't love at all, and it's not spiritually mature, if not totally opposed to being a church at all. You, you see, speaking the truth in love isn't, well, I'm going to shut my mouth when there's sin going on, and I'm going to be quiet about this and that. And I'm not going to say anything. I'm just going to turn my back to it. Speaking the truth isn't in love isn't, well, we're going to now tolerate all kinds of sin here in this congregation. Speaking the truth in love is we're going to tolerate uh, this misbehavior and that wrong and this rebellion. and all. No, no, uh-uh. Speaking the truth in love is speaking the truth according to God's good commandments, upholding the Word of God, upholding His Sabbath day, upholding His forbidding of fornication and adultery and homosexuality and everything else. But you still do it according to 1 Corinthians 13. You see, we can speak the truth very sharply and very strongly, but it still has to be spoken in love. That's what edifies the body, and that alone. Where that's not done, you will find division. You will find separation. You will find the body not growing. You will find it being blown around. And not only that, well, this is really the explanation. If you ask why that is, it's because that nurtures unity. Let's go back to the picture of the sapling and the, the tree. And ask yourself, why is it that that one tree stands in all that wind, but the sapling is blown all over the place? And it has to do with how all the parts are so tightly joined. So tightly joined are they in that oak tree that you can chop down that tree and slice it and use the wood to build houses and furniture and all kinds of things. That's how tightly bound it is together. Not so with the sapling. It's green. Parts are loosely connected. They're not very strong. You see, that's unity, that there's a power there. And what the, the profound the apostle thing that he's saying here is speaking the truth in love edifies because it promotes unity. It keeps unity. It, it brings a strength to the body that otherwise wouldn't be there. So that when the winds of doctrine and the craftiness comes, it doesn't splinter and split and fall apart. That's what he's describing. I know there's a lot of language there that's difficult to understand. I'll read it. Verse 16. This is what he's talking about. From whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth according to the effectual working in the measure of every part maketh increase of the body into the edifying itself in love. Let me paraphrase. What he's doing is he's talking about what makes a spiritually mature adult strong as opposed to a child. How easy is it to break a bone of a child or separate their arm from the socket? It's pretty easy. How easy is it to knock a child down? It's pretty easy. An adult, no. Why? What, what's going on? And the answer is that part of spiritual maturity is all the pieces, parts of your body, all the joints, all the muscles, all the tendons, all of it binds together in such a way that it becomes very, very difficult to move or to break or to bend. 
That's what spiritual maturity is. And that's what he's talking about here. Spiritual maturity is when the tendons and the, and the knee and, and all these things and the muscles have become very, very strong. It's very, very difficult to separate those pieces parts. Well, what does that? What, what makes all those things bind together without coming apart? The apostle's saying, in the church it's love. That's what does it, love. When you go running, what is it that keeps your knee from falling apart? The, the answer is that there's lubrication there in that knee that keeps those bones from grating on one another. And then when that goes away, we got arthritis, don't we? We have to replace that joint or we're, we're hobbled. That's what love does. That's how love functions in the church. What's he talking about? How does this work? And the answer is, you see, what love is, is really love for the body, love for the other members. Love isn't self-serving, self-seeking. Love always understands that what I have is for the benefit of others. What God gave me is for you. I'm here to serve you. You're not here to serve me. Even if I bring the Word and I speak the Word, it's not about me, it's about you. It's to help you, it's to assist you. That's what love is. And when the church lives that way, it not only is spiritually mature, but it's very, very strong, very, very unified. Take the love away, and the church will fall apart. It will become victim to false doctrine, to winds of doctrine. And don't forget, those doctrines can even be with regard to love itself. Perhaps the doctrine that says, well, love is overrated. You know, all those other churches have wrong views of love, so let's just get rid of love. We don't need it. All we need is to speak the truth. That would be a false doctrine. That would be a cunning, crafting, and sleight of men false doctrine. The truth is in this Word of God. And this is what makes us strong. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, which art in heaven, O Lord, we love Thy Word, Thy Word of truth. Help us, Father, to be no more children tossed about to and fro by winds of doctrine. Give us grace, Father, to speak the truth in love so that we might grow up into Him, into Christ, to be one as Thy body. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.